Good morning, everyone. Let's pray together and get started. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Amen. Everything that I need to know about a movie, I know in the first five minutes. Everything that I need to know about a movie, I know in the first five minutes. I have a feeling that I am speaking for most of us in here when I say that the advent of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime have made us significantly less patient movie and TV show watchers. I remember when I was growing up, I'm sure that this was the same for most of you, uh, if you wanted a movie, you had to, you know, if, if you wanted to watch something that wasn't, you know, on cable, you had to drive down the street to movie gallery or blockbuster, and you had to actually spend the time in there picking out a movie, you had to buy the movie, and then you had to drive all the way back home, and then once you were home, you had to actually put the thing in the VCR or the DVD player, and then at that point, you would watch the movie. You know, the, the very process of us going to these places and taking it home made us, you know, the fact that we spent time actually going to get this movie and bringing it home made us more likely to spend some time letting the movie develop, right? We would give the movies, we would be patient with the movie. We would let the characters develop, we would let the plot develop. We typically weren't just going to, after five minutes, after all of that process, be like, all right, I've had enough. However, today, because we don't have to deal with a lot of that kind of stuff, a lot of time, if I'm watching Hulu or Netflix, five minutes in, if it's not something I'm feeling, I'll change the channel, right? The way, the, dif- the difference in how we've watched these things has really changed how, how much patience we give these movies. However, you know, it, I don't think it's just the difference in process. I think that, at least for me, truly one of the reasons I only give most movies five minutes is because most of the time I really do know everything that I need to know about that movie in the first five minutes, right? In the first five minutes, I can tell, is the acting good? What genre is this movie? What's the lighting like? Is this current movie, the mood, does it kind of fit with my current mood right now? Is this something that I want to spend my time with? Everything that I need to know about a movie, I know in the first five minutes. I think that the same is true of the Bible. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Braley, that sounds a little bit heretical. Uh, Jesus isn't even mentioned by name until like a thousand chapters into the Bible. How can you possibly claim that everything you need to know about the Bible, you know in the first five minutes or first five chapters? Well, if that's you, just know that I am being a, at least a tiny bit hyperbolic there. Jesus is the main point of the entire Bible, and you are right. He is not mentioned by name until like 900 or a thousand chapters in. However, we must always remember that the Gospels of Jesus 
do not simply fall out of the sky, unconnected with the rest of Scripture. Instead, Jesus actually is a part of a much larger story. The very first verse of the New Testament attests to this fact. The very first verse of the New Testament is actually about the Old Testament. What's the first verse of the New Testament? Matthew 1.1. The book of the Genesis or genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is a part of a ginormous narrative that has as its core foundation and starting place the first five chapters of the book of Genesis. Without these five chapters, it is impossible to understand the rest of the Bible, much less our Lord who so amazingly fulfills it. So, what are these chapters about? And why are they so incredibly significant to the rest of the story? Well, if you have never read these chapters before, or if you have, but maybe it's just been a long time since you have, allow me to spend a few minutes here this morning making sure that we are all on the same page. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that the God of the universe made everything. He made it easily, and he made it without any help. He made the entire world. He made everything, including our planet. And he did not make it like we see it today, with evil and human death that we are surrounded by. Instead, he made the world Good, and he made it with all kinds of diversity. He made it with all kinds of different plants, all kinds of different sea creatures, all kinds of different birds, and all kinds of different land animals. And we see that God took delight in his great and awesome creation. However, we also see in these chapters that God takes delight in some parts of creation, of his creation, takes more delight in some parts than in other parts. This is most clearly seen in God's creation of us, mankind, in his own image on day six. On this day, God essentially decides that he will create an animal which is very different than the rest of the animals. He will make this animal in such a way that, in some mysterious way, they are a reflection of him in his world. Why? Well, for one, he creates humanity so that they can essentially rule the world, rule the world benevolently on his behalf. God is clearly the one in charge in the beginning of Genesis, but he graciously allows these human beings who are made in his image to be his under rulers, his under rulers on the earth. God is the king and he gives Adam and Eve, the first humans, the responsibility of being the prince and the princess of the earth underneath his rule. Truly, the first man, Adam, is given every good thing imaginable by this loving and powerful God who has just made him in his image. God gives him great food, God gives him an amazing job. God gives him an awesome place to live. And God even gives him a girl. 
right? He gives him everything that Adam needs. And most amazingly, and I think that this is the point of the story that most of, that, most of us actually look over when we read the beginning of Genesis, God not only gives Adam awesome physical things, he also gives him the most amazing gift of all. He gives him himself. That's something that we oftentimes look over. God gives Adam the relationship with himself. Adam's life and his wife's life is awesome. We do not know how long they lasted in this situation. But however long it did last, life was solid. God gave them every good thing with only one prohibition. Only one prohibition. Chapter 2, verse 16 reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Only one prohibition, royal man and woman, made in my image. Only one prohibition. Don't eat that tree. If you do eat that tree, you'll die. You will die. Why will you die? Why is the tree even there in the first place? Don't worry about it. Just trust me. <laughs> Don't eat the tree. I have given you everything. I'm not holding out on you anything. Remember, Adam, I gave you a girl. I gave you a job. I gave you all this kind of stuff. Don't eat the tree. Life will be great. See you at breakfast in the morning. <laughs> That's basically what's going on. At this point, everything is still great in Adam and Eve's world. And then we hit chapter 3, where everything very quickly goes crazy. Five minutes into the Bible, everything goes wrong. That's one of my, I don't want to say favorite parts of the Bible, but it's always really interesting talking to non-Christians who a lot of times are like, you know, the Bible's just so, you know, pie in the sky, and it acts like everything is great. I'm like, have you ever read it? <laughs> it's three chapters in, you know. Everything goes wrong. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the, that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the, 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is one of those stories that I think we have heard so many times that I think that we actually read it very poorly. I don't think it was actually until my second year of seminary that I actually fully understood uh, a lot of the significance of what is going on in this passage. So what is going on here? In short, treason is going on here. Treason is going on here. An attempt at overthrowing the sovereign is going on here. Full-on Benedict Arnold-style mutiny is going on here. Adam, who has been given every good thing, I have to just keep on emphasizing that. Who has been given every single good thing by his loving creator doesn't do his job and neither does Eve. This couple was created to be rulers of the world, guarding and keeping God's creation on his behalf. When this random talking snake shows up, what should they have done? They should have killed it. Or at least just gotten rid of it or been like, whoa, talking snake. For one, why are you talking? Why are you here? We're in charge here, not you. Get out of here. That's what they should have done. But instead, they listen to this random talking reptile. They trust his words instead of God's. They believe that God isn't actually good, but that he is holding out on them. 
they plan an insurrection. Thinking, God doesn't want us to have this fruit because he knows that if we have this fruit, we'll be in charge, not him. And the results are as disastrous for them as they are for us when we think that God is holding out on us and not being completely truthful. A kind of curse is placed on them. They see their nakedness and they are self-conscious, knowing that they have been alienated from God, each other, and themselves. God had claimed that they would die if they ate the tree. They do not die immediately, but they are altered immediately. That's very clear. And amazingly, God doesn't do what most of us would do if we were him in this situation. If it was me, I most likely would have just said, all right, we're going to run this whole thing back. I'm going to start over with some much more loyal and better creatures. But God doesn't do that. He does curse them. That is clear. He does curse them. But he does not only curse them. He shows them grace in verse 21 by clothing them. But more than just that, he gives them hope. He gives them real hope. If you are Adam and Eve at this point, you are surely thinking to yourself, we have messed up everything forever. We are going to die, and our kids are going to die, and their kids are going to die, and it's just going to keep on, you know, this death spiral is just going to continue on forever. We have messed it all up, you and I. I think it's really significant, by the way, that depending on how this genealogy we're going to get to in a second really works out, Adam would have lived Definitely lived, at least according to the text, 900 years. How exactly that works out, we're not sure. But he lived a long enough time to be able to look around him, seeing people die, and be like, that's on us. Adam and Eve are sitting there just thinking, this is all on us. We've messed it all up forever. But in chapter 3, verse 15, one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, a verse without which you really can't understand the rest of the Bible, there is a glimmer of hope in this incredibly dark passage. When God is cursing the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is not completely unambiguous. What is very clear here is that the serpent, the enemy of God, is going to be killed, or at least badly wounded, by a daughter of Eve, who is going to be wounded in the process. The picture here is of a man stomping on the head of a snake, stomping on the head of a snake while the snake is biting the man in the process. Adam and Eve hear this pronouncement. They're there. They hear this. And you know that in their mind, they're sitting here thinking, maybe God's up to something. Maybe 
God is going to fix all of this some, some way, somehow. God is going to right our wrong and kill the serpent and fix our world. Oddly enough, through one of our own children. One of our children is going to make all of this better. The news keeps getting worse, though. In chapter 4, they do have children. And their children are going completely off the rails. Their oldest son kills their youngest son. And the descendants of Cain, the brother who killed his brother, are worse than Cain. If you thought Cain was bad for killing his brother, at least he's not as bad as Lamech, who takes multiple wives and then starts killing men and then starts writing love songs about murder. Like I said, four chapters in, (laughs) getting worse and worse. The good world that God has created has gone off the rails. There is no hope. Where is this son who is going to crush the head of the serpent? It's not in these nut jobs. That's for sure. Chapter 4, it's like, it's not these guys. This is not going to be the promised offspring who's going to fix everything. The only righteous person we've seen so far was Abel, and he was killed by his own family. You know, once again, Adam and Eve are looking around the world and saying, we really shouldn't have eaten that tree. That was a bad idea. But in chapter 4, verse 25, Adam and Eve receive a bit more hope as they have another son. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. In other words, maybe Seth will reverse everything. That is, if he is not murdered by another member of our family also. Fingers crossed. Is Seth the answer? If not, who is? This morning, uh, if you want the answer to that question, uh, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, where we're going to be picking up this story this morning. This is genealogy month at the at Hope Community Church. <laughs> Man. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel after he lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, and this one shall bring us relief from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The short answer to my question from a second ago is no. <laughs> Seth is not the promised offspring that Eve hoped he would be. How do I know that? Because he died. That answer is pretty simple. He died just like Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, and Lamech. All of them die with the exception of Enoch, who was taken by God in the middle of his life. Now, if you know me and uh, things that I just like to nerd out on a lot, you may know that I am pretty fascinated by questions surrounding the book of Genesis. I am very tempted to do with this passage what I really wanted to do also with Genesis chapter 1 and just be up here and just pontificate on how I think that a lot of the confusing stuff in this passage could possibly be explained. You know, I, I want to sit here and talk for 20 minutes about how the Bible is not the only ancient Near Eastern document that talks about people living 900 years and all of that kind of stuff. This is strangely a pretty common phenomenon in this area of the world. 
Uh, however, I'm not going to do that this morning because I think that as with Genesis chapter 1, I think that a lot of times modern day Bible readers uh, spend so much time, and I'm talking about myself here, spend so much time on those questions that we actually miss the much more important theological point of the passage. I am uh, not trying to avoid anything. If any of you have like serious questions about this passage, I would love to talk to you after the sermon. However, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that now. Instead, during our time this morning, I want us to focus on the big picture of this passage and how it relates to all of the Bible. So, what is the main point of this passage, in my opinion? God was not lying. Because of Adam's sin, death did come, both to him and to his descendants. Yet in Noah, Lamech found real hope. If you know me uh, at all, you also know that I'm a pretty big sports fan. I have uh, I've never really been a huge fan of individual sports, like golf or anything like that necessarily. I'm not opposed to them, it's just never been something that I really love. I've always just loved team sports. Partially just because I think that there's something unique about watching a group of girls or guys work together to try and achieve victory. And just one of the unique things about team sports, or just teams in general, is that teams are really only as strong as their weakest link. You know, I don't know, there's so many thousands of games I have been watching where, you know, a team is winning, and in the last 30 seconds of the game, a, a player on their team commits a stupid penalty, and the entire team gets penalized for that one player's incredibly stupid action. They collectively receive the penalty of the individual. Now, the analogy is not perfect. I know that teams are typically voluntary in nature, for example, whereas uh, the human race is not. You didn't decide to be a human as opposed to a beagle. Uh, however, <laughs> I do think it's a pretty... I think there's something there to that analogy. Adam sinned, but his sin does not only impact himself. His sin penalizes, penalizes the entire team. Because of his sin, not only is he found guilty, his team is penalized as well. All of his descendants, including you and I, are counted guilty. And they received death like he did, and they experienced the perversion of their human natures just like he did. Notice the repeated truth of this chapter. This person had this child at this age. They lived so many so-and-so years after they had this child, and then they died. And it's just death, 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 death. Death, the death that God promised would occur, is rampant both in this chapter and in our very own lives. I am only 25 years old, 
Most of my friends, uh, praise God, are young and healthy. However, even I at 25 notice that it seems like every single year, more and more people who I love and care for die. To quote Johnny Cash, What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. Surely, I think the members of this genealogy, that's what they're thinking to themselves. Everyone we know and love and care for goes away in the end. Similar to chapter 3, there is next to zero hope in this passage. This is an incredibly dark chapter. Until we get to verse 28 and 29, where like Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and the birth of Seth also, there's just like this tiny little spark of hope. There's a spark of light. Listen to verses 28 and 29 one more time. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. For one reason or another, upon the birth of his son, Lamech is like, This is the one! This is the offspring that God promised to Eve. This is the one that's going to make everything right, who's going to reverse the curse, who's going to, in some way, destroy the enemy of God, and he's going to find a way to reverse this terrible existence that we find ourselves in. This one is going to make everything right. And then Lamech dies in the next verse. Noah, for his part, does some pretty awesome things in his life. If you read the next few chapters, he saves humanity and the animals by building an ark. However, if you keep on reading right after that, Noah decides to get drunk and naked in his tent. Must have been from Auburn, Alabama. (laughs) Noah despite his accomplishments, was not the savior that Lamech thought he would be. He dies just like everybody else in chapter 9. Now, at this point, you may be thinking to yourself, Brayley, we just went through the first five chapters in the Bible. And I do not need, I don't know everything I need to know about the Bible at this point. There are still a lot of loose ends. If that's you, you're right. at least in a certain sense. But know this, these first five chapters have given you a background and a set of expectations. God created a good world. Adam messed it up. God has said he's going to make things right somehow through an offspring of Eve. And the people of God are putting their faith in the promises of God to send a redeemer who is going to reverse the curse. 
through an offspring of Eve. The bad news, though, is that if you read the rest of the Old Testament, even the good guys look a lot like Noah. Abraham routinely pimps out his own wife in order to try and get himself out of trouble. Even righteous King David commits adultery with one of his friend's wives and then has that man killed, essentially, so that he can have that woman for himself. If we learn anything from the Old Testament, it is that the promised offspring cannot merely be one of us. Why? Because we are all a lot more like these men than we would like to believe. We are all sinners, and we are all under Adam's curse. So what should we do? What should you do this morning? We should be like Lamech. Not saying we should put our hope in Noah, like Lamech did, but instead we need to put our hope in the one whom Noah foreshadows. Put your faith in the one who actually reverses the curse, Jesus Christ. Put your faith in the only one in all of human history who has obeyed God perfectly and who has actually come back from the grave. Defeating the very curse and the very death that Adam brought about and in which we are all in some way complicit. However, uh, do not just take that from me. Take it from the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says about Jesus in relation to Adam in Romans chapter 5 this morning. I know that we already read this in our scripture reading, but I just want to read this together one more time because I think that these verses, especially when it comes to understanding the entire Bible, you really can't overestimate how important these verses are. Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin isn't counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift isn't like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift isn't like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The importance of that passage cannot be 
overstated. Now, you may still be in here this morning saying to yourself, Bradley, this whole, like, me sinning an Adam thing doesn't make a lot of sense. I didn't sin in the garden. I didn't sign up for Adam's team. How can God hold me accountable for something that I did not do? How can God hold me accountable for sins that, at least partially, are seemingly the fault of another person? Uh, if that is you this morning, um, once again, I would love to talk to you afterwards because for 2,000 years, Christians have wrestled with this, and there are some really, really good books out there. Um, that I would love to recommend to you. Maybe even read through with you. However, we'll say before you start pointing your finger at God, know that this entire representation thing works both ways. Works two ways in the Bible. Not only is humanity in a certain sense, condemned by the actions of another. Humanity is also saved by the actions of another. And we should thank God for that. I know that we were not, at least in a certain sense, in the garden. We also weren't on the cross. You have not lived the kind of life that Jesus lived. You have lived a life full of sin, just like Adam and Noah and David and me. But by believing in Christ, but by believing that he lived a perfect life on your behalf and died a death on your behalf, you get the credit for his work and you are made right with God in a way that far supersedes the negative effects of what Abraham did or it's not Abraham excuse me Adam did truly the entire story of the Bible is about a God who loves us so much that he is not willing to let the sin of our first parents get in the way of a relationship with him in Jesus Christ God has graciously made a way I don't know about you. Uh, I'm not really one to turn down a gift. This month, um, a guy at our apartment community gave me a present. And it was a obviously it was a, it was a wrapped present. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, "Yeah, present! Yay! You know, awesome!" It wasn't like, "Should I receive? Should I? Should I take this? Should I receive this or not?" You know, I just I saw this present. I saw this gift, and I was like, "Sweet! Somebody got me something free. I'm gonna take this thing." I don't even know what it is. It was like a dust uh, duster for your car because I had gotten a new, you know, a new car and all this kind of stuff. I was like, hey, it's free. I'm, I'm thrilled about it. I wasn't like, I'm, I'm going to turn down something. That would be crazy. In similar fashion, Paul just referred to Jesus and his work on your behalf as a free gift Five times in three verses. Free gift, free gift, free gift, free gift. It's like he's just driving this home. This is a free gift. 
to not accept a free gift of the magnitude that Jesus is offering you is insanity. So, this morning, accept Jesus and his free gift to reconcile you with God and to set you free from Adam's curse. Because of Jesus, we can live forever with the God who we were designed for and created for, but who Adam messed up, that relationship. In Jesus, we have reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for you. And we thank you for the fact that you are so much more gracious than we are. Whereas, I think most of us in this room would have cast us off, cast humanity off forever, uh, starting in Genesis 3. Uh, we thank you that you care about us so much that in Jesus Christ, you made a way. And I pray for the people in this room this morning who are, who are doubting whether or not they are reconciled with you, I pray that you would assure them of that fact. And I also pray for anybody in this room who maybe is questioning this whole Christianity thing, maybe is questioning uh, whether or not Jesus really has made a way. I pray that you would make that clear to them. Help all of us to see our need for Jesus. And help us also to see the Jesus who so fulfills our need. His name I pray. Amen.